Hey, how many of you are excited to be back at Next High School for the fall? Praise God. How many of you are certain? Bad idea. It's like, it's hot in here, right? Like, am I crazy? It's really hot in here? I know, I know it's because of you, David. I know that. Don't worry. The Bears, the Bears are pretty bad. They are pretty bad. But so are the Vikings. So I don't know what... Uh, how about them Green Bay Packers? <laughs> Praise God. Hey, there all your pretty faces are. Okay, hold on. I was able to turn my iPad back on. Hold on. Be patient. Wait patiently. Boom. Okay, we're good. Hey, <clears throat> welcome, or at least I think we're good. It's frozen again. There we go. Welcome to Next High School. How are you guys doing tonight? You doing good? Okay, you can do better than that. You doing good? Good, good, good. Can we have lights turned on over here too? Like I feel like I can see them. Is that possible? Do we know? It's not possible? Sorry, guys. You chose the wrong section. Round of applause for Laura Buchelt, everyone. <laughs> Praise God. Hey, hey, I am, I, I'm super excited to be with you guys tonight and you gals tonight. My name is Matt Velasco. I have the privilege of leading uh, the high school ministry here at Grace Church. We call ourselves Next High School. And by now you may have noticed that we say something around here. We say that tonight is the best night of the week. And, and, and we say that because we firmly believe it. But we don't just firmly believe it because we get to have fun, because you get to hang out with your friends, because we serve free food. But we firmly believe it because this is a place where you get to encounter Jesus in your life. Whether it's for the hundredth time, the first time, the fifth time, whatever it might be, we believe that Wednesday nights are special because of that. And we get to gather as the church and we get to sing together and we get to open up God's word and be stirred by the Spirit. This is my second year now leading here at Next and I'm really excited. I feel like we finally get to do normal I feel like this is finally like who we are. We're not in the commons. We're not like hearing all the kids being released from kids ministry in the middle of whatever it might be. But we get to actually be down here, be together, and do what we do, which is have fun. And, and, and hear the preaching of God's word and, and worship together. A little bit about me, in case we've never met before. I'm 26 years old. Tomorrow, I'll have been, tomorrow, tomorrow, I have been married for 11 months. Crazy, crazy. She hasn't left me, praise God. We have, we have Jay, six months, six months old, Kirby, six months old, something like that. It was like right when we ended in the spring, we got a puppy, his name's Kirby. Uh, I call him Corbis. I don't know why, but I do, and Jay hated it at first, but now she occasionally calls him Corbis too, and it's kind of catching on. He even knows his name is Corbis, and I might just change it. Uh, I am, as you may have guessed, uh, probably the biggest Chicago Bears fan you will meet. Yeah, praise God. Go Bears. Justin Fields will be the greatest quarterback in NFL history. He will be the greatest quarterback in NFL history. And you might be thinking, Matt, you said that about Mitch Trubisky. Mitch Trubisky will be the second greatest quarterback in, in NFL history, if not the greatest backup in NFL history. Because who's he fighting against? Like Chase Daniel? I mean, come on. He's, he's easily got that. Um, but that's a little bit about who I am. And if we've never met, I, I would love to be able to meet you. Uh, God's got some special stuff in store for us this year. We're going to be kicking off a new series tonight called Jesus Said. Uh, we're going to be talking this whole year 
about things Jesus said. And so you may know if you've been around here before that the first series of each year is sort of our like theme for the year. And so our theme for the year is Jesus said exact words that came out of Jesus's mouth. We're not going to be reading like, I mean, we're going to be reading a lot of different things. But everything we're reading is what Jesus said. Like, you know, those red letters in your Bible, if you have that type, that's what we're talking about. Because I believe that there is Christians in a church in this world today that they think they know what Jesus said, but when they actually read the Bible, Jesus completely disagrees with them. And we're going to be talking about that, and it's going to be really, really fun. And and I want to say, if you are new here tonight, I am so glad that you are here. If you are new here tonight, whether you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus, I would plead with you to come back next week. I would plead with you to keep coming back all year, especially if you don't know Jesus. And maybe your friend brought you here and you're like, ah, man, that's like, even though Matt said it wasn't Christian karaoke, it was kind of Christian karaoke and it's a little bit weird. And now I'm sweaty because all these Minnetonka football players had to be up here jumping up and down. You know what it might be? And so what I want you to hear is, is a simple question. What if... Jesus Christ was indeed real and is indeed God? What if Jesus Christ was indeed real and is indeed God? There was a Jewish convert to Christianity whose name was Marvin Rosenthal. He actually asked this question prior to his conversion. And he said that it was actually the genealogy of Jesus that led him to his conversion. It was the genealogy of Jesus that led him to his conversion, and my iPad literally just crashed it again. Jake, can you bring my phone, or can Jake, can you bring my phone back there? It's to your, uh, over there. I'm going to have to use that probably. Turn to the person diagonally to you and say, hey, who cuts your hair? Or just talk. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. I have no idea why my iPad isn't working. This is less than ideal, but it's, it's, the, it's what we've been dealt. Thank you, Maggie. Okay, let's bring it back in. Let's bring it back in. Shh. Shh. I was just talking about a, a dude named Marvin Rosenthal. Marvin Rosenthal was not a Christian. He was actually a Jewish person. And, and he asked that very question prior to his conversion. He asked, what if Jesus Christ actually is Lord? What if Jesus Christ actually is God? Not just real, but God. And he said that it was the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew that led him to an answer that ultimately led him to his conversion. And to explain what he meant, Rosenthal actually used a helpful analogy from his time in the U.S. Marines like decades ago. He said this. He said, at the rifle range, he and his fellow soldiers would practice their aim by shooting at a target from three distances, 200, 300, and 500 yards. From that distance, they couldn't always tell by the naked eye if their bullets hit the target or not. 
And so in order to determine their accuracy, one of the soldiers would hide down in a nine-foot ravine behind the target until he heard ten shots. Then he would get up and check the sharpness of the shooter. He'd check to see where on the target they hit. He would add up the score and relay the results by slipping a colored disc onto the end of a pole and raising it high. For each bullseye, a red disc would be secured and the pole would go up and down. So if you were six out of ten, if you hit the targets in the center six times out of ten, the pole would go up and down six times. Now if you hit the bullseye ten times out of ten, that same pole and red disc would be lifted into the air and spun around once. Rosenthal would go on to say that for a Jewish audience, especially who would understand the significance of the necessity of genealogical records, that Matthew's genealogy hits the bullet or hits the bullseye ten times out of ten. So like I said, we're going to be launching a series on things Jesus said. And I think before we can look at things Jesus said, we need to look at who Jesus is. And what better way to see who Jesus is than actually look at who and where he comes from. And so these first two weeks, we're going to be walking through what I think are two of the most theologically beautiful and rich portions of Scripture, and that's Jesus' genealogies. And you might be thinking, Matt, we just did two years in the book of Acts, and you're starting us off with his genealogy, a list of names. To which I would respond, yes, but I promise you, and this is why I want you to come back. If you can just sit down and dig deep into scripture, you will realize that even the most boring and the most mundane portions of scripture, if you dig deep enough, are like a mine of gold. So, I think you're going to be shocked at what we find. And just like Rosenthal, my hope is that you will see the perfect bullseye that is Jesus' genealogy. And my prayer is tonight that if you who don't know Jesus would come to know him as Savior and God. And if you do know Jesus, that you will realize beneath some of the most boring scriptures, like I said, is a mine of gold. And so let me pray for us and then we'll open up our Bibles. Lord, we love you so much. God, we ask that tonight you would be with us. Lord, we know you are here but would we recognize you? God, as we open up your words, would we realize that we need not ask, God, why aren't you speaking to me anymore? Because we know that when we read your words, you are speaking. So Lord, as we dig into your family, where you came from, the timeline you chose to put yourself in, God, would we find you? We love you so much, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, open up your Bibles to Matthew Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you do not have a Bible, feel free to use your phone. If you do not have a phone, feel free to use the screen. If you need a Bible and you want one, we will give one to you. Just let your leader know, let me know. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon. I refuse to say Salmon. Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father, Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And at this point, you're probably thinking, Matt, you are punking us. We are not actually reading this tonight, to which I'm responding, we are not done yet. This is indeed what we are reading. Continuing in verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. No, we are not done yet. Am I getting all these names pronounced correctly? I have no idea, but I'm trying. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadak, and Zadak, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. We're almost done. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. My iPad crashed again. Hold on. This is like, we'll just call it spiritual warfare. Why not? Why not? Where was I? Okay. Now, I know that was a lot of names. And I do not expect you to remember all of them. So I want to hone in on one section in particular, if we can go back to the first verse. Matthew chapter 1. Can we get the first verse on the screen? Thank you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, And we're going to talk more in a moment about why I want you to hone in on this verse. But before that, I, I want to take the lens out a little bit and look at two more verses. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The Old Testament is a, a book that the Jewish people still today consider to be the scriptures. And the New Testament is what differentiates us from them. It's all about Jesus. Explains to us why Jesus is God. Now so does the Old Testament if you're reading it correctly. And we'll actually talk about that. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, and Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. They'll be on the screen for you if you don't want to turn to them. Isaiah eleven ten. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be 
glorious. In that day, the root of Jesse. Revelation 22, verse 16 says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. My hope is that even now you are noticing that the genealogy of Jesus is like dozens of hyperlinks, right? Those things that you click and take you somewhere on the internet. They're like dozens of hyperlinks that bring you all around scripture. And just like Rosenthal says, this genealogy hits the bullseye ten times out of ten. But what does that mean? There's a pastor and a commentator of the Bible named R. Kent Hughes, and he utilizes Rosenthal's analogy with some slight modification, and we're actually going to do the same tonight. And so I want you to imagine this portion of the Bible that we just read as three targets. Three targets, one 200, one 300, and one 400 miles, or not miles, that would be far, yards away. And think of God, not as a U.S. Marine with a rifle in hand, but as an archer with three arrows. Picture him standing back, and as he looses each arrow, it strikes dead in the center of the targets. God wants us, like Rosenthal and his friends would do, to metaphorically then insert the red disc into the pole and lift it into the air and give it a twirl, showing that we see his perfect aim. And so the first target we're going to call the right line. And this means that Jesus is from the line of Abraham and David. God hits this target dead in the center when he plans when Jesus the Son will come into earth. He perfectly places him into the line, the family that he was supposed to be in. Jesus is from the right bloodline, as Matthew will say from the start. He says, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David are two key names in this genealogy, and if you miss seeing them, frankly, you, you miss the whole entire thing. The meaning of this genealogy just disintegrates if you do not see David and Abraham. So why are these two dudes so important? And it's because God gave them two promises, one to Abraham and one to David. You might be familiar with the Abrahamic covenant. He says, go from your country and your kindred, this is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised Abraham that he would raise up God's people who will be a blessing to the entire world. And friends, that word world means Gentiles, literally, which are non-Jewish people, which is probably all of us. Saying that God will raise up Abraham's root to be a blessing 
to all Gentiles who do not know God. This is a foreshadowing of the gospel. This gospel glimpse is further specified but by what we call the Davidic covenant, which is the second promise I was talking about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. It says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he says to David, David, when you are dead and gone and buried in a grave, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So you might be thinking, what's the point? God is showing us that he hits the lineage target. In other words, he is showing us how Jesus is descendant of both Abraham and David, that Jesus comes from the right line. One biblical scholar describes it this way. He says, Jesus has the correct spiritual pedigree to be the Messiah. The Messiah also known as the one who will save us from our sin. He was to be a Jew, which meant he was a son of Abraham. And he was to be from the tribe of Judah, which means the bloodline of Judah. And from one specific member of that tribe, David. But what's interesting and is oftentimes ignored is that Jesus was one of four others who shared this bloodline. Jesus had four brothers, all from his dad, Joseph. And so what separates Jesus from his brothers? And that's what the other two targets are all about. What makes Jesus so different? What makes him different from everyone else in human history. And before we get to, to them, what makes him different, I want to highlight what John says in his revelation. We read it earlier. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. If you have your Bibles, underline this. I am the root and the descendant of David. John writes Jesus' words and Jesus' own self-proclamation of being the root and the descendant of David. Another way of saying it is that he is the creator of David. He is both the creator of David and the descendant of David. And, and I don't want you to miss that. He is both the creator of David, but also the descendant of David. And so what makes Jesus so captivating? Maybe you're in this room and you don't have faith in Jesus or any faith at all. To which I would respond, everybody has faith in something, but that's a different conversation. Jesus is the most captivating human in all of history because he's the root and the descendant of David. But why does that make him so captivating? It's because it tells us about his authority and his humanity. What separates Jesus from all other humans and Christianity from all other religions is the fact that God, the root and the creator of all things, everything ever, decided to descend. He willingly took on flesh. He willingly placed himself into the bloodline of humans so that he could die on behalf of the very people he created. He is the root and the descendant. And God 
hits the arrow dead center in the target of the right line. Without that necessary, necessary, man, I did go to school. I graduated, I think. Fun fact, a year after I, no, it was like six months after I graduated, I realized I never actually graduated. And I don't know why. They like screwed something up in my transcripts. So they're like, hey, you didn't actually graduate. And I said, why'd you let me walk? And then it was this whole thing. Their fault, not mine. I did graduate, I promise. I think. So this isn't the only target that God, the three-arrowed archer, is aiming at. The second is that Jesus was born at the right time. So you can write that down. Jesus was born at the right time. And we'll see here that God's arrow hits the bullseye yet again. There's something Matthew wants to make sure we don't miss. So he ends his genealogy like this. And I'm sorry, you haven't used my phone. It's really being a buzzkill right now. So just, I apologize. I'm not texting, I promise. He, he wants to see this in verse 17. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of what this, this number 14 means. Some scholars actually say it's a Hebrew literary device which assigns a number to... Um, uh, like each word, and so some people think that like the 14 is, is metaphorical. Other people think that the 14 is, is Matthew talking about what's known as Salvitic or salvation history. And so we're just going to kind of leave that over here. But what I do want us to catch is that regardless of how you interpret it, God is saying something really clearly. He's saying to us that God, that he has designed history around the birth of Jesus. God has designed history around the birth of Jesus. And on paper, we actually all agree. Right? How many of you have ever written BC before? What does BC stand for? Before Christ. How many of you have ever written AD before? You're all lying. How many of you have written AD before? Thank you so much. What does AD stand for? doesn't actually stand for after death. A lot of people think it does. It stands for Anno Domini. It means in the year of our Lord. So B.C., before Christ, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. But what we do is we completely strip it of its biblical and theological meaning. And we don't allow it when we write B.C. or A.D. on our history test or we read it in our history book. We don't allow it to impact us at all. We just kind of ignore what it could mean about Jesus. I lost my spot again. I, guys, I'm so frustrated right now. God designed history with this person born here and that person born there and one event happening now and one then, all to prepare us for Jesus and to give room for faith. And so a lot of people ask, some of you have probably asked this, Matt, why didn't Jesus come in the era of TikTok? Why didn't he come when I could just find him on my For You page healing someone? 
Why didn't he come when a viral video of him walking on water on the Sea of Galilee could be sent to everywhere in the world so that when my friend comes and is like, hey, Jesus isn't actually real, you can say, hey, man, did you see this viral TikTok? He is real. Why didn't he do that? And it's this little thing called taking the faith out of faith. So many of us, the way we live, the way we talk, the way we think, is we are literally saying to God, God, can you just take the faith out of faith? Can you just make it so I don't actually have to have any faith at all? Can you just make it so that I can look at TikTok and not have to even think about who Jesus is and just say, okay, I guess I believe it. See, so often the way we live, the way we think, the way we talk is we're saying to God, God, I want nothing to do with faith. That's too hard. And so Jesus came at the right time. He came at the right time. And friends, let me tell you, the word tells us that people didn't believe even though they saw in the first century and people won't believe when they see whenever he comes back. See, faith is about believing in that which seems to be impossible. A man dying the most brutal death ever in human history and then coming back three days later, it takes something to believe. Jesus came at the right time. He came at the right time and often we wish God had a different time. See, God is real and he is faithful and we can see these real attributes of God in creation and in scripture. And yet God has not made himself so self-evident that no faith whatsoever is required. How boring, like just think about this, how boring would it be if God took the mystery, the beauty, the trusting of faith and just stripped it out of our lives? It would be like taking the mystery out of romance or the oxygen out of air. It would be dull. It would be lifeless. It would be robotic. It would be so not like God who created this unbelievably complex, mysterious, and beautiful universe. And so twice in a row, God hits the bullseye. And now for a third time, he does it yet again. This time on the target that we will call the right design. It's not just that Jesus came from a Jewish royal bloodline, but the design of where he came from, why he came, and for whom he came. So what's the design? And and candidly, I'm going to tell you it's strange. It's obviously unique. But specifically, it has three peculiarities that would have offended the modern and the ancient Jewish person, especially the Jewish person of the first century. And why? Because Jewish people in the first century had a high value on racial, moral, and patriarchal purity. All that means is that they essentially wanted to keep their bloodline clean. And I know that in our modern day and age, we hear that and probably a dozen thoughts race through our heads. But back then, it was totally normal and totally accepted. And so what are those three peculiarities? These are fun. I bet you didn't know these were in Jesus' family. First, 
Jesus' genealogy includes five women in particular. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah was a woman known as Bathsheba and Mary. Women were rarely included in a Jewish family's genealogy unless it was to show the purity of the line or to enhance its like reputation. So it's like someone could go up and be like, hey, I'm descended from Sarah. Or, hey, I'm descended from whoever else it might be. It was a way to brag and say, like, hey, I'm especially Jewish. I'm especially holy. But here in Matthew, that isn't the purpose. In fact, the second peculiarity is that four out of the five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus aren't even Jewish. So you talk about wanting to keep a bloodline clean. Four out of the five of them weren't even Jewish. They're just a bunch of Gentiles, just like you and me. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, which is a race of people with which the Israelites were forbidden to marry. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites traced their lineage back to Lot. Here's something you should know about Lot is he practiced incest. In Jesus' bloodline, there is incest. Then there is Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah before she was the wife of David. And Uriah was a Hittite, which means that in the ancient Jewish legal system, Bathsheba was a Hittite also. In short, Jesus' genealogy, according to Jewish tradition, was as impure as it can get. And to go even one step further... Most of these women were involved in what I will call, without going into too much depth, irregular sexual practices. I'll just leave it there. I'm not going to go into the depth of them because they're probably just going to distract you, but in order to prove the point, allow me to tell you about Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. And so Jesus is great, 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 grandma was a prostitute. Jesus' genealogy was not clean. And by the way, I'll also say Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, the wicked town where the walls came tumbling down. It's God's plan. So if you look at the so-called righteous men of old, Abraham, who was a liar, Judah, whose idea it was to sell his brother Joseph into slavery, David, who had his friend murdered in order to cover up his own adultery with his friend's wife, or Solomon with his polygamy and idolatry, or even Hezekiah with his pride. All of these men and all of these women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, and you thought your family was messed up. One scholar describes it this way. He says, it's as if Matthew puts a criminal lineup before us. But why? Why does it matter that God pierced the bullseye of the third and the final target? Why is it important to us that Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, adulterers, and liars? 
Matthew wants to show us what Paul will teach us in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came not for the righteous, but the unrighteous. For sinners like Matthew the tax collector and Rahab the prostitute. He came for sinners like you. And he came for sinners like me. And that's why the genealogy of Jesus matters. So I'll ask you again, what might it mean for your life if Jesus is indeed God? Because if Paul was right, and Jesus did come into this world as the Messiah to save us from our sin, then you are indeed so in need of this Savior named Jesus. Let me pray. Jesus, for those of us that know you, we confess our sin to you. Lord, we confess our doubt, we confess our struggles, Lord, but we know you forgive us. And Lord, for those of you that don't know you in this room, or for those that don't know you in this room, I pray that even now in this moment, they might begin to have their eyes opened up like Paul did on the Damascus Road. To see that, God, you are good. And even though a lot of Christians might want to act that they're perfect and they've got everything right and... Nothing could be wrong in their life, Lord. Your own bloodline shows us this world is wicked. And yet you decided to descend. You, the root and creator of all things, decided to take on flesh and come into this world so that you could save us. God, and we just want everyone to know you. We want there not to be a single soul in this world that doesn't know you. So Lord, help us to love our neighbor. But even more important than that, help us to fall deeper in love with you. Because it's out of that love that we can love anything or anyone else. Lord, we love you. We praise things in your name. Amen.